0: This is Rodder Drill, General Porter, General Porter, all hands manual your battle station. Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues in all things maritime. And good day, everyone. Great to have you aboard. Uh, and if you are with us live, I'd like to start off by extending invitation to scroll down to the bottom of the page. Uh, that's where you will find the chat room that we're going to monitor during the course of the show if you have some observations you want to share. Or some questions you want to address to our guests, that's the best place to be as we kind of march forward for the next hour. And if you got to take off, uh, remember, if you don't already, you can go over to iTunes or Spreaker, and you can subscribe to the free podcast. That way, this episode and any other previous episodes will be there waiting for you at your convenience to listen to. Now we're going to get on to today's show and we're kind of building off a theme of our last few shows as we're looking west on the other side of the Pacific because all you really need to do is look at the map or a quick read of history, and one of the things that those in the maritime domain know is any victory in any type of war out there, it's going to ride on naval forces, logistics, control of the air, and the ability to sustain all three over a distinct period of time. And our guest today is uh, spot on for this, and he's returning to MidRATS. It's Brian Clark. He's a senior fellow and director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. And as a starting point for our discussion today, we are going to uh, reference a report he co-authored with Timothy Walton titled Regaining the High Ground to Get to China, a Plan to Achieve U.S. Naval Aviation Superiority This Decade. Brian, welcome back to MidRATS.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Sal and uh, Eagle One. Great to be here. I appreciate you guys having me back on.
0: Well, we're definitely glad to have you, and we're glad to have you for the full hour. And kind of as a kickoff, it's, (laughs) you know, life always has plans for you when uh, you've developed your own kind of uh, idea, is when you look at the timestamp that uh, the report you and Tim Walton put together over at the Hudson Institute, it's got an April 2022 timestamp on it which tells me y'all were working on it well into last year and then as you were doing all the final edits and stuff the russians decided that this report was too important and they needed to distract people <laughs> from it and, and promptly invade their neighbor in ukraine which means you know understandably everybody's eyes have been focused that way and then uh, this summer uh, Speaker Pelosi saw that injustice and said, "You know, I, I've got to, i got to help uh, Tim and Brian out. So I want people to pay attention to China again, paid a visit to to Taiwan, and uh, people for a variety of reasons have looked again at the the ongoing progress that the People's Republic of China have been making in the Western Pacific. So I just wanted to, to kick things off and kind of." You know, Talk about that process where you, you produce a document. And there's a lot here that and I'm glad we got an hour to talk about it. Um, but then all of a sudden, history decides to do something else, but then gives you a little bit of a second chance to get people's um, focused on some of the issues you raised.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And um, you know, so we did a study, uh, Tim and I did back at CSBA, I guess two and a half, three years ago now. That was focused on the carrier air wing. Um, and in that study, we tried to address both European scenarios uh, and Asia Pacific scenarios. Um, but for this study, as it turned out, as luck would have it, we focused on Pacific scenarios um, because uh, obviously that's what the Department of Defense has identified as the pacing threat is China. Um, and the you know, the challenges for naval aviation are much more acute when it comes to a Pacific scenario. Uh, and then the role of, of naval aviation is going to be much more prominent in, in the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific uh, than it will be in, in a European scenario. So we felt like for a lot of reasons it made sense to you know, define this as the most challenging environment and the most challenging set of missions to do. Um, and then obviously you could apply some of these same principles to a European fight. Um, but a couple of interesting you know, things sort of come out of that, which we can talk about later, but I'll just say right up front, um, the utility of the Growlers in the European theater uh, has been pretty uh, high. So the, you know, the, the commanders there have really taken advantage of what the Growler can do, uh, even with its current kit, not just the next-generation jammer, uh, in, in defeating or, or to confusing and, and, and degrading Russian sensors and air defenses. Um, and in our study, we found that the Growler's got a, a fairly limited utility in the Pacific because of its range and its, and its vulnerability. So, so the European theater does kind of highlight there's some areas where you know, the naval force can contribute in ways that maybe it can't contribute in the Asia Pacific. Um, and, and by the same token, you know, there's ways that obviously the, the naval force can contribute in the Indo-Pacific that it can't do in Europe. So um, that was interesting. And, of course, we appreciate Speaker Pelosi's efforts to you know, draw attention back to the Pacific by causing another Taiwan Strait crisis. Always uh, important for providing context uh, when we start talking about this, and and, uh, you know the Chinese have have also helped out by you know creating a a, a confrontation uh, around China, rather Taiwan, uh, because of their their pretend blockade or their you know their their actions that imply a potential blockade uh, around Taiwan. So those are all important and helpful to making the case for why we need to reexamine you know what the naval force can do in this in this environment. Yeah, it's a, it's a
2: uh, it's a pretty complicated picture, and I'm always looking at uh, or Sal and I are always discussing that we've got the time, time and distance problems in the Pacific that are somewhat lacking in the, in the European area, uh, coupled by, with a uh, the, the rather strong defensive position the Chinese have. So talk a little bit about uh, the effects of the tyranny of time and distance and the tyranny right. of of uh, trying to. Trying to pose a very strong uh, de- defender in the in the environment of the South China Sea and China.
1: Right. Yeah. So um, it's interesting, you know, when you look at the European context, actually. Um, the way the naval force ends up being able to contribute is is in a lot of ways like the maritime strategy of the 1980s. So you're still having to do these very long-range missions from uh, the Norwegian Sea, for example, um, and dealing with uh, ASW challenges at the GAUK gap. So in a lot of ways, the the challenge is similar to what you face in the Indo-Pacific because uh, the naval force has to operate from from relatively far away. Um, Obviously, in Europe, you've got a lot more Bases that are closer than what the, the carrier can do, but the carrier does provide, you know, or naval forces in general, provide the ability to threaten you know, the the uh, the bastions uh, that that Russia depends on, as well as the flanks, you know, that it would want to you know, try to, it would have to bolster if it were not, uh, if they were, if they were to be uh, threatened by naval forces, and then the Indo-Pacific, obviously, that's the biggest, you know, challenge in terms of tyranny of time and distance. Um, you know, the when we looked at the study, we, you know, obviously. The challenge of range is is probably the biggest thing or the most the fundamental thing we have to ad- tackle, um, and that 's been addressed before in previous studies. Um, you know, so we started off talking about you know what's the, what at what range can you really reliably generate sorties from the aircraft carrier, which is the heart of naval aviation um, but we also wanted to look at how, in addressing that challenge of you know having to operate from we found about fifteen hundred nautical miles away from China. Um, what can the rest of the naval aviation portfolio contribute to help make that happen? Because I think previous studies, including our own, they focused uh, mostly on the carrier air wing. How do you retool the carrier air wing to be able to get out to – be able to send weapons out at 1,500 nautical miles away from where the carrier sits. Um, And that that was too narrow a view, we kind of figured. We realized in the analysis that we did and the war gaming that we did that um, you do open up a lot more options if you take advantage of the entire naval aviation portfolio, you know, between the Navy and the Marine Corps, between land and sea-based air, uh, between carrier air and aircraft coming off of other platforms. So, the, so that was, you know, the, the main challenge is the, is this range challenge. How do I deliver a reasonable number of fires out at 1,500 aqua so miles? Um, and then how do I enable that with what the other, you know, land and, and sea-based naval aviation forces can do? Uh, and that's what really was the starting point uh, for the study. Um, and we found that, you know, if you stop looking at the carrier air wing as a self-contained, you know, all-inclusive multi-mission unit instead, say, it's mostly there to deliver fires, you know, mostly there to get strike fighters out as far as they can go. Um, then that means, you know, other missions need to shift, you know, to these other platforms that drives you to um, what could land and, and sea-based air do that are not on the carrier. Um, and we can, you know, I can get into a lot of detail on, on specific missions and how those play out, but that's like the fundamental challenges. How do you cause effects, you know, at a, that, those kinds of ranges? Because if you can't, um, you're leaving in the, in the Chinese hands in this case um, you know, a narrow set of threats they have to face, right? So their options um, are pretty wide when the naval force can only deliver a small number of strikes out at the kinds of ranges where the carrier can deliver sorties irreliably, um, which makes their job easier. So to make their job harder, we've got to be able to deliver more effects at longer ranges to create more option space for U.S. commanders and start to constrain those that are available to Chinese commanders.
0: I think the, the R word there is is absolutely spot on, and it's the the common thread that is woven throughout it. And, it, and I know y'all did a good job containing your frustration, but it's um, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite things in the world is a story about how Vince Lombardi started every football season is. Uh, You know, he's got a a room full of professional football players, the best of the best, and he would hold up a football and say, here's a football. You always have to start with the fundamentals. And there's a quote in in the conclusion of the article. I kind of wanted to to start as a a reference to my question. Uh, From the conclusion of the article, quote, to counter Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific will depend on carriers focusing on missions that – among naval forces, only they can do sustainably and at scale, long-range counter-air and strike warfare. And that nature of the Pacific, all you got to do is is grab a chart or preferably a globe. I'm a big fan of globes. Um, yep. To look at that, and, you know, in World War II, the the, the Japanese. Aircraft, whether you're talking about their two engines or even their their zero fighters, were all designed around that range challenge in the Pacific. Our fleet submarines um, had such great right. range because we'd have to go in the Pacific. And trying to to keep that focus uh, institutionally inside DC, and you've been a while in DC, you know the environment <laughs> there and. China's ranged weapons that everybody has been focusing on the last few years, they weren't developed or deployed overnight. They have steadily built this capability. I've always said you you've got to get a nod to the uh to the planners uh at the People's Republic of China. They've they know what they needed to do and they've been building it steadily, bit by bit for a while. And yet, you know, here we are at, you know, the, approaching the middle of the third decade of the 21st century. And we're having to go back and and look at the the equation we thought we had solved in the 1920s and the 1930s about the importance of range. Why did we take a break? And I guess you could draw the line when we uh, divested ourselves of what we were talking about in the previous question, the, the aircraft that we designed to be able to strike the northern part of the Soviet Union uh, from the Norwegian Sea, the, the heavy fighters in the F-14, uh, the A-6 intruder, and we divested ourselves of organic tanking. So we took what was an air wing that had some, some deep reach, something that's much short. As, as we tried to rebuild that capability, what were some of the justifications you think brought us to this place that we have to relearn the importance of range So people can listen for that argument when it comes up again so we don't have to fight that battle as we kind of run out of time
1: yeah great point so we in the in the study we even talk about the history of the carrier air wing and show a depiction of you know what the com- composition of carrier air wings typically looked like back to the fifties um or actually before then so basically right in during World War two and then its aftermath um all the way through to today um and you know as you said during the during the cold war and and in previous periods also you know in um in world war two as well when um the threats to naval forces increased, we tended to have to increase the number of specialized aircraft on the carrier deck. And that was to because a multi-mission aircraft is just not going to be as good at doing counter-air, strike, um, long-range operations um, as a specialized aircraft that's designed around those missions. So we've you know, we have these phases where we become increasingly specialized to deal with high-threat environments, and that's where you saw during the height of the Cold War, we had the A-6 you know, for the long-range strike mission. Um, we had the F-14 for the long-range counter-air mission. We had S-3s that we're using for tanking, and we even had K-A-3s that we were using for tanking, um, which were huge uh, carrier aircraft, even to, by today's standards. Um, And and then those those specialized aircraft allowed us to get the reach and deal with the threats that were being posed against the naval force. And then as the Cold War wound down, we moved away from those specialized aircraft because they each had their own. Your tail. You know, their logistics train, their own training pipelines, their own um, uh, unique uh, sustainment uh, requirements um, that cost money. And so we were trying to save money. So efficiencies demanded that we go to more multi-mission aircraft, and they could take over, you know, an increasing share of all the missions that the carrier did. And now we're at the point with today's Air Wing where it's, um, you know, except for the fact the F-35 is starting to show up, you've got an Air Wing entirely of uh, F-18 EFs, um, supported by uh, some Growlers, some E-2s for airborne early warning, and then you've got the COD and then your, your helicopters for anti-submarine warfare, which are mostly actually off, off the carrier. So the carrier is essentially this, jack you know, it's got a jack-of-all-trades, but really master-of-none sort of com- composition, um, which leaves it, you know, less able to do these long-range missions or even deal with the higher threat environment you're going to face in the Pacific, you know, aside from range. Um, and, and so that, that's the transition that we've seen multiple times, and now we're, we're now moving out of that, and we're probably going to move into a. And normally we move to a, move into a phase where we get increasingly specialized uh, carrier air wings to deal with that threat. The challenge today is that the aircraft are bigger, um, and to get a number, you know, sufficient number of strike fighters that can deliver a decent salvo downrange, you'd have to, you know, you can't put, you can't replace a bunch of strike fighters with specialized aircraft and still retain that ability to deliver large salvos. So we have to come up with another way to deliver those specialized capabilities to the naval air force that's in theater, um, other than taking up space on the carrier deck to do it, which is what we would have done in previous generations.
2: Yeah, I was fascinated by the uh, the approach you took to taking some of the carrier aircraft, the uh, the uh, I guess the E2, the E twos. I never remember this stuff, and put them, putting some of them ashore. And I'm looking. Well, that means shore bases. That means Air Force type thinking. Uh, what, what was your thought process on on uh, on, on selecting those aircraft, and why
1: why is the Air Force not jumping all over this and going, us too, us too? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, so a couple of things. So one is, um, you know, because I, I wanted to give, uh, you know, kind of – Be honest and and above board and and say, well, what if we just took the strike fighters uh, off the carrier? Maybe we didn't have carriers in the future Um, and put those on land bases and had them behave like the Air Force, because they've got longer range aircraft because they're launching from air bases ashore. Uh, And the problem is that you just can't generate enough sorties from the bases that are going to be survivable in a conflict with China, Um, because anything that's a relatively large land base that can generate has the fuel and the weapons and the magazines and the command and control to do pretty good sortie generation is going to be one that they're going to target and be able to attack. Um, And if you go to the, like the Air Force's plan for adaptive, um, uh, adaptive basing or agile combat employment, um, those smaller airfields end up not being able to generate very many sorties, which is which is fine because they, that's not their, their job necessarily, but that means that your strike fighters are sub-optimized if they're spread out among those distributed, platform, distributed bases. So the best place for fighters um, in the Indo-Pacific ends up being on the carrier because it's mobile. Little, you know, which makes it somewhat less uh, vulnerable. And it's better defended than your average air base. Um, and it's got all the concentrated support mechanisms to deliver sorties quickly. So if you want to you know, focus on sortie generation or the ability to generate sorties, then you want to put your strike fighters on the carrier. Well, And then the, then the question becomes, well, how do I get them out to the range that they need to get in order to be you know, relevant in in a fight with China? Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily striking the Chinese mainland, but it means you know you, if the carrier, where is the carrier going to have to sit to be able to reach places like the South China Sea, the East China Sea, potentially the Taiwan Strait? Um, With a with a standoff weapon, and that means the carrier now is out at 1,500 nautical miles away in the in the Philippine Sea or out by the second island chain, Uh, and then you're using a standoff weapon like a Elrasim or something to get the last you know two three four hundred miles to the to the target. Um, In that area, though, you know that's that's 1,500 nautical miles away, and and your average um, strike fighter's got a, a combat radius of Six or seven hundred miles, so you got to come up with something to fill that gap, which which drives you to essentially filling your your carrier deck with m q twenty five tankers and strike fighters. Um, the air Force, you know we've talked to the Air Force about the mission set and how they would support it. That we And we did a tanking study uh, earlier this year um, in concert with the Air Force. Uh, the tanking study revealed that there's not going to be really any Air Force tanking free to support the carrier air wing uh, in a fight with China, unless it's just a weird fight where the Air Force isn't busy doing anything, <laughs> meaning like a blockade perhaps where they could free up tanking. Um, but if it's any sort of larger combat with China, then the Air Force is going to be using its tankers for bombers and, and AWACS aircraft and everything else. Um, and then when it comes to the counter-maritime mission, um, in theory, you know, B1s, B2s, B21s, um, you know, could do counter-maritime missions, and they're even trying to integrate l onto the, or they have integrated onto the B1. Um, they're thinking about putting it onto the B2 also. Um, but the issue is those airplanes have other jobs, um, and the Air Force isn't buying any El um And as you can see, you know their their integration of those missiles is slow. So we didn't want to assume the Air Force is going to come to the rescue here. So when it comes to the maritime mission set, you know dealing with the PLAN, dealing with islands that are out in the South China Sea, dealing with um, you know threats to Guam, you know way out in the second island chain, that's going to fall mostly to you know the Navy and then whoever happens to be on Guam, and that. That's that's a thing the Navy can contribute to. But those missions are going to fall to the Navy. The Air Force isn't going to really have enough uh, you know, capacity to free up to save the Navy from having to deal with these challenges. So that, that those were the drivers that led us down the road of, well, what's the naval aviation portfolio need to look like then? As
0: yeah, um, far back as... Is- you know, the revolt of the admirals in the 1950s, everybody's been talking about, you know, the the day the carrier is gone. I remember being in college in the 80s, and I was in the basement of the library. There was some magazine, I think it was The Atlantic or maybe The Nation, that its cover was uh, a U.S. Navy battle group cartoon, but all the ships had a duck head on it. <laughs> you know, they're all sitting ducks type of thing. Yeah. So you know, the, the death of the carrier is always um, a, a little bit exaggerated. And I I like your quote there on on chapter two because it tied into two things because you can't help but look what's coming out of the Russia-Ukrainian war and tie it into what you're reading. And two things that I thought about that uh, first was the sinking of the cruiser in Moscow was a classic example about you can't have a single point of failure at sea where you're going to take combat losses. And if you just have one ship out there and if you lose it and your backup question is, okay, what's going to take that mission is nothing. You know, you're going to have a bad day. And of course the the attacks on the air bases nearby are kind of tapping people on the shoulder and I thought tied in really well to your article. And you lay it out kind of nice in the opening of of chapter two. uh, quote, the Navy is unlikely to have the funding or time to field by 2030 a new class of carrier-based fighter or attack aircraft with dramatically longer range. The alternatives being considered by carrier size and operating areas would be conducting offensive air operations from land bases as the Air Force does. However, land bases are attractive and vulnerable targets that are likely to be among the first attacked in a confrontation with a high-end military like the PLA. An aircraft carrier, despite its space constraints provides a more su- survivable airfield than land bases due to mobility and, more importantly, its organic defenses and those of its accompanying escorts. And you, you mentioned earlier also that your square footage is your square footage. There's only so much you can do with it. And if you're looking at 2030 as your deadline, mm-hmm. so what you and Tim are looking at is here's what we want to accomplish And if we want to realistically be there by 2030, what do we have on hand now that I would assume a lot of your mathematics went to if we could allocate more funds to it? And one of that was an interesting concept y'all had about using the, the stingray as a tanker debt. And some of the numbers, even by 2030, if you're smart, you could make that happen. Talk a little bit about If by 2030 we could have that in place, if not for every air wing available to whatever air wings for deployed, what that additional square footage of the hangar bay would buy us to compensate for what we had talked about before in the show that we know is a shortfall in the Pacific with our air wing
1: yeah so the um yeah so one one really good point I'm glad you raised is uh you know twenty thirty was the time frame that we're looking at is we didn't want to look at it twenty forty five which is where you know the navy's current battle force analysis is looking because um that may not be relevant you know China may choose to act before well before then um you know, also there's too many things that can happen between now and then. I tends to you know when you look at a study that you know twenty five years in the future uh, it's going to make a, some pretty rosy assumptions regarding technology uh maturation and and technology adoption um, and if you go back to previous studies that looked at like the 2025 time frame you know we're nowhere near where people thought we were going to be now so we just have to accept the fact that you know we're if things are going to be slower I mean it, it's not good but things are always slower than when you anticipate so we want to look at 2030 and say given the platforms that are either in existence today or in development um, that you know, are pretty close to being done, like the MQ-25. Um, you know, what can you get? What can you put into the field by 2030 that would enable you to address the naval mission set um, by basically drive, drawing upon the whole naval aviation portfolio? So not not getting bore sighted only on the carrier air wing. Um, and if you think about the the fact that the carrier is the best place for strike fighters, um, we said, well, let's keep the 44 strike fighters on there. What would you need to get? you know, all the available strike fighters out to a thousand miles from which they could deliver a standoff weapon that goes, you know, 500 miles notionally, which would give you that 1,500 nautical miles, which means now the carrier can sit in a place in the Philippine Sea where the number of weapons it has to face are small enough that they could fall within the defensive capacity of the carrier strike group, and we show the math in the the study on that. yeah uh, you know, that's important because in um, I think the Navy makes some uh, pretty optimistic assessments about you know what it might be able to do in terms of defeating the Chinese kill chain you know so that they could get the carrier in closer um, and those assumptions about you know what we can do to defeat the kill chain um, always require actions on the part of the carrier that reduce its sortie generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you want to maximize sortie generation, maximize challenges for the PLA, well, then you've got to keep the carrier at a place where they can, you know, it can operate without having to hinder itself by doing a bunch of counter-ISR activities. Um, So that means the carriers out there at 15 nautical miles, you need, you know, to get your 44 strike fighters out as far as you can get, 1,000 miles, um, each each uh, MQ-25 notionally can get two strike fighters out to 1,000 miles, which means you need for, you know, if you have 44 strike fighters and 0.7 availability, um, which is kind of the day-to-day norm. Um, you know, that's about 30, so now you need, you know, maybe 15 um, of your um, MQ-25s um, and maybe a couple more than that if, if your operational availability on them is like 0.8. So that you end up with a, a carrier deck that's pretty much entirely 44 strike fighters, 15 or so, um, uh, MQ-25s, and then you've got a little bit of space left over for some E-2 deltas and some Growlers, um, but not the whole complement that they have today. And you also have to get rid of all the helicopters, which they pretty much do as a routine now. Um, but that'll get you your your full you know complement of, of strike fighters out to a thousand miles um, if you need to. Um, it's just a notional you know kind of alpha strike type model. Um, or lets you, you know, we did some math and shows in there, um, if you want to do air defense um, in, in concert with strikes, you can, you know, use the tankers to enable you to do air defense at, you know, longer ranges or longer durations um, that would be necessary to protect against the kinds of anti-ship cruise missile threats you're going to face from PLA bombers, PLA ships and, and submarines um so so to to um to make that happen that means you've got to somehow come up with a way to do airborne early warning with fewer e two deltas on the carrier um air defense with fewer e two deltas uh and uh electromagnetic warfare electronic attack um with fewer growlers um and we show in there. This is actually an opportunity. Um, I think you know the Navy has been kind of um, again pushing these decisions out, but the e two uh, and the growler both have a lot of limitations that are already constraining their utility in any Western Pacific confrontation. Um, so rethinking the carrier air wing and the portfolio in this way actually is good for the Navy too. You know, lean into some new technologies to do these missions instead of doing it the same old way with, you know, a manned multi-mission platform or manned, you know, platform that does does this mission like we've done in the past. So we've got to think about new approaches to do things like airborne early warning, air defense, and, and uh, EW.
2: Yeah, that was, that was going to be my next question. You've got this great uh, figure, figure 14, in your, in your uh, document here that, that talks about that. I mean, you've got everything from stratospheric balloons to uh, um, a whole bunch of, of uh, unmanned surface vessels, unmanned right. underwater vessels. Could talk about that a little bit because the technology here, I think you're saying, already exists. We just need to, to get right. it out there and start using it.
1: Yeah, so in each of these cases we we brought in technologies that exist and have been m- matured on the commercial side or um exist and are you know just need to be operationalized by the by the navy. Um and we didn't presume that there was going to be some you know super some significant advancement in any of these technologies. So to talk a little bit about it the um I mean think about airborne early warning and ISRT is kind of a you know fundamental set of missions that you have to do if you're going to you know support air defense, you're going to support um you know strike warfare, anti surface warfare, et cetera. So that um kind of surface air airborne early warning, ISRT uh, mission set. You know, today, you know, the Navy tend, you know, they can rely on some space-based capabilities, but you're reliant on that coming via the IC. Um, and so, carrier, you know, commanders, carrier air wings like to use you know, the organic platforms. They like to use the E2 Delta uh, for this. They might take advantage of what an MQ4 might be able to afford them because you can get you know direct feed on a Link 16 from them. Um, but it, it tends to be relatively you know contained on the carrier air wing. Um, and if you're going to move to a model where one, you've got Um, you know, one problem you have is now my E2 Delta, um, can see 250 nautical miles away about, um, that's its radar horizon. Then, um, if, if you're 1500 nautical miles away from China, um, and the, the, E2 Delta can't wander too close to the Chinese coast for fear that it might get attacked. Um, that means you've got a lot of real estate between the carrier and China that has to be that's not surveilled by the E2 Delta. Um, so we found that the model ends up being, and this is something the Navy is already kind of moving toward, is the E2 Delta ends up hanging closer to the carrier and focusing on the air defense mission and kind of a local. ISR&T picture, and and then you've got like a thousand miles of space around the carrier where you've got to come up with a picture, you know, both in the air and on the water. Um, So we propose a more distributed approach to do that, which is about the only way you're going to accomplish it. which uh, combines uh, what the MQ-4 does. Um, They're operating out of Guam. Um, The MQ-9s that the Marine Corps is buying right now, and they intend to operate out of the first island chain. Um, These uh, stratospheric balloons, which are based on the balloon as being used right now for the Google Loon program, which provides mobile broadband um, in places that don't have wired internet or ground-based internet, terrestrial internet. and um, and then also leverages uh, space-based systems. So those are the main contributors to this this distributed ISR and distributed airborne early warning picture. Um, these um, these platforms, you know that would tend to, as opposed to the E2, which relies mostly on its active radar to generate a picture, these other platforms are gonna tend to rely on passive sensors, um, which actually is good because that's sort of the direction we're moving in terms of airborne early warning, targeting in the future is much more about passive RF, passive IR, rather than active radars. You know, that monostatic radars that reveal the location of the emitter, and and you get yourself shot that way. so turning to this passive picture, you know, coming from a more distributed set of uh, sources um, and then having the E2 be the integrator of that picture, that's the model we were moving toward. And this, this is a model that's not inconsistent from where the Navy's going. Um, it's just that we're advocating that the Navy be more open about that and push harder <laughs> to get there by 2030, as opposed to stumbling into it. Um, when, you know, the fight happens, you have to create this in the, in the breach. Um, and then, um you know, then that 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 ISRT airborne urban, urban early warning picture then drives into your your air defense um, your picture your air defense operations and your your surface air warfare operations.
0: Yeah, Brian, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the balloons because when I was reading the report, I thought, well, what?" <laughs> I had to back up, but when you pulled the thread on it. Um, it's one of those things that you want to keep pulling the thread on because there's some interesting capabilities here. Because y'all also addressed an issue that's um, always been one of those little uh, dust balls in the corner that I, I look at now and then that I wonder whether anybody's going to pay attention to. Is, you know, back when I was a little baby J-O at the end of the Cold War and, and during Desert Storm, we were playing around with this radical new stuff, a lot of which you bought commercially and went on deployment with because he couldn't wait for the Navy supply system to catch up, these things called uh, GPS, a little handheld unit. And uh, some units, but not all units, uh, had satellite communications. Nobody had broadband data. We still were communicating with 100 baud, HF, TTY. So we weren't. And then over the course of the 1990s, we were no longer having to worry about this new domain being contested and then we've had over two decades of our um, ground wars that we had in central asia and southwest asia and you know here we find ourselves in 2022 and whether you're talking about our telams or our communications and our reliance on our broadband networks we depend on the electromagnetic spectrum and satellite communications uh, to, it's a critical capability, but it's also a, a fairly critical vulnerability. And you all touch on that a little bit uh, in your work. Uh, what are some of the, the, the mitigating factors you see that we could do uh, if the Chinese decide to contest access to uh, satellite data and voice communications?
1: yeah yeah good point so, um let's take this uh, airborne early warning network that we're proposing so you've got these um these google loon balloons um they're they're made by Raven aerostar but they're the, these balloons that are up there they're they're floating around in places between the first island chain basically and the carrier you've got m q nines driving around inside the first island chain or over the first island chain at like twenty thousand feet you've got the the uh you know the the uh, mq 4s up at you know 60,000 feet, and then you got your E2 Delta back at the at the closer to the carrier, having to integrate this picture, and then also you've got space-based sensors, some of which you can actually access directly, you know, and that's in that which is a big issue right now is um, right now most of the time to get satellite. Targeting feeds—you got to call to somebody back at home to get that from the inter- intelligence community. Um, and just now, we're starting to finally give some direct feeds of satellite information to forces in the field. Um, that's some of that's commercial, like Hawkeye 360. Now has demonstrated the way to a way to deliver their in, their targeting information directly to a, a unit in the field. Um, and there's uh, the new Space Development Agency architecture is going to have Link 16, um, and then you've got some other players in the commercial world that can use a uh, five. You know, to maybe deliver that. So you've got some options to get that space information directly. But, you know, the, the, the challenge will be the spectrum. Um, and, uh, you know, the PLA is going to try to, you know, contest the spectrum with a lot of broadband, you know, jamming. They'll go after link 16. They'll go after, um, you know, some of the other frequencies we use for the the more obvious broadband, you know, links like common data link, et cetera. And the key is going to be um, using line-of-sight communications as much as possible, um, which is why the um, E2 Delta as the integrator becomes really important, uh, because, you know, if it's up at, you know, 40,000 feet or so, you know, and it's going to talk to a uh, MQ4 that's up at 60,000 feet, well, they can see each other line-of-sight, you know, over – you know, if you do the math, about 600, 700 miles at least, um, you know, similar to the same, same with the MQ-9, maybe a little bit less distance, but you can certainly get 500 miles to talk to the MQ-9 uh, and the stratospheric balloons, you know, same deal. So, so you could use line of sight comms to a large degree to integrate this picture. They're going to be really difficult for the Chinese to interdict unless they want to fly out there, you know, and get in between you and the transmitter, um, which is going to, you know, either that that's part of a, you know, major, you know, uh, push that they're making into, the, into your operating environment um, or they're going to put themselves at risk doing it. So it's unlikely they're going to send out a jamming aircraft to, you know, get in between you and the Google Loom Blue to try to jam your your, your uh, comm signal. So that's really going to be the key is not having to rely on the space part of the network where there is going to probably be a lot of uh, ja- Chinese uh, uplink jamming. You know, so you're not going to be able to talk to that in Marsat. You're not going to be able to talk to that um you know, your uh, MUOS uh, satellite, and maybe even EHF, right, because they're going to be jamming those uplinks. You're going to have a difficult time breaking through from, you know, wherever you are in the footprint.
2: Well, as long as we're talking about bad things, let's talk about submarine warfare, and you guys address that, because that's what we're going to do with the uh, the P-8s, right? And where are we going
1: to put those, and how's that going to work? Yeah, I don't. I mean, which um, it's it, which uh, the whole ASW um, plan that the Navy has just uh, it sort of baffles me that they. I mean, I think they're trying to tackle this, but um, they have not really turned the corner on operating P eights and um, surface combatants inside the you know highly contested environment of the first island chain is not going to be an option, right? So the 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 challenge we're going to face with this whole scheme right, is that if you've got this distributed air defense concept that we talk about in the the paper, um, then you're you're able to try to do outer air battle 2.0. So you're going to try to catch these bombers that are the biggest threat you face, actually, um, before they can launch their weapons. And you're not going to be always successful at that. And then you've got this inner ring with a a cap. The cap is mostly focused on anti-ship cruise missile defense as opposed to shooting down airplanes. but the, you know, So we got this way of you know, getting warning through the airborne early warning network, trying to interdict the bombers before they get to a place where they can launch or interdicting the surface ships before they can launch because we can see them, um, and then catching the cruise missiles um, with our caps and our surface combatants. Um, but submarines are the one thing that don't fit into that model because they can drive in. If, you don't, if you're not tracking them, they're going to drive in inside your, your uh, defense ring and, and attack you from inside the range of your your DCA caps, your, your missile caps, uh, which would be, you know, that defeats the whole scheme of uh, air defense we got. So that, so we had to come up with a plan that would allow you to. Um, find submarines as they enter the battle space and enter the operating area, and then keep track of them until you can kill or until you can attack them. Um, because for if, if China, the smart thing to do is deploy your submarines, particularly like the Yuan um, SSKs uh, with air-independent propulsion. Launch them early before the fight starts. They're they're going through the first island chain. We might pick them up as they go through the first island chain, but we can't do anything about it because there's no ROE that allows you to shoot them. Um, and then, you know, eventually we're going to have to stop tracking them because there's so many of them. There's, you know, at least two dozen that are likely to be out there or could be out there. Um, and we don't have that many submarines and surface ships that can trail them. And uh, we don't have enough PHs to trail them. And in any event, those three platforms probably have other missions they need to do um, that we would love, you know, them to be able to go and do instead of following around a submarine. So what we propose in the study is to set up a um, a pretty aggressive, um, you know, uh, know, choke point search using um, deployable uh, sensors like the traps, but there's lots of other ones, but the traps is the... um, is the unclassified, you know, one that the Navy talks about, the Trans- Transformational Reliable Acoustic Path System, which is a bottom-mounted sonar that you can, you know, s- stick into choke points and looks up and sees submarines coming through and then passes those detections along. Um, and instead of using P-8s inside the first or near the first island chain to do sauna buoy um, deployments and search for these, these submarines that are on their way out uh, to open ocean, uh, we propose using the MQ-9s that the Marines are going to deploy. So the Marines have are buying MQ-9 uh, alphas. we proposed propose that they buy instead the Bravos uh, and use those to deploy SANA buoys to do the ASW search and track mission as, as these submarines leave the first island chain choke points. Um, and then those MQ-9s would turn that mission over to um, M- MUSVs, which the Navy has already been operating out there in the Pacific, um, that can tow a towed array and they can carry the uh, processing system on board, which we've already used on multiple other platforms, um, that sends off target you know, reports to a P-8. So the P-8 getting target reports on these submarines that have now made it outside the First Island chain. The MUSV is in loose trail on them. Um, and then at some point, you know, we're going to get the, 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 uh, you know, the, the go-ahead to start going weapons-free, um, and that's when the P-8 comes into play. Is your P-8 from going, is going to be mostly a command-and-control platform during that fight, and then would transition to then launching weapons and, and shooting at these submarines. Um, and really all you need to do is, is start shooting at a submarine uh, to make, cause it to break off its attack. So you're not gonna, you know, the submarine's not going to hang around to wait and see if the, one of those torpedoes is actually going to hit them. <laughs> They're going to try to break off, regain their stealth, and you've at least made them go away for some period of time. Um, and that's the approach we advocate in there, because the current approach, which is sort of designed around a small submarine threat um and being able to do little kid soccer against it where we throw every ship and submarine we have against it, that's not going to work you know in a fight with China. there's just too many submarines and there's too many other jobs for those those ships to do so that's that's the argument we make in there, and it's um we even talk about the math in there, but it's um it's much cheaper you know, if you have to do this for a sustained period of time, you can actually sustain it because you're using um, unmanned systems and you're using fewer sauna buoys, which is always a problem on these ASW uh, prosecutions. We run out of sauna buoys pretty quick. So those were all all baked into this this new concept. But um, unless we got a way that scales our ASW effort, we're leaving open the possibility that China just floods the zone um, with these AIP submarines and now we're facing a cruise missile threat inside of our Defensive rain.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the, the challenge with your sonobuoy inventory because that's what that's what I was thinking of. I was picturing, okay, they're dropping, they're carrying forty, and they're going to drop a couple of patterns. How many days can we do this before right. somebody goes eh, no more no more sonobuoys left? Because uh, you're right, when you war game that out, the numbers get really ugly really fast. Which right. would be great if we could flesh out that concept because, as you know, right. these types of plant feeds where money goes. And if that's something that we decide we want to be able to do, that demand signal needs to uh, get in the worm now so that bulge can right. come out the other end with some actual material. Right. And you know, with looking at 2030, like we talked about before, you know, you're looking at you know, what is reasonable that you could get. Um, if not completely, at least partially there. And uh, in that time frame, it's not vaporware. Right. And uh, two things come to mind. One was, uh, these are actually two separate questions and i want to be efficient and ask them to you in one. They're kind of related. But first is uh, you make the observation, which is correct, that our submarines are going to have to leave theater to reload. And, It's not impossible. We just don't have the capability because we gave it up Uh, that, you know, there are things that could be done and programs that could be put in place that would allow us uh, in an expeditionary mindset to do what has been done in the past, which is reloading in theater as opposed to going out of theater. That was one of the great successes we had. I think in the second half of 43, we actually got the ability to do a lot of things in theater that our ships were having to leave theater before. And the second was, uh, and again, I, I felt bad that I didn't know about this, which I would encourage the, the listeners to grab the report and read it because you're going to find a few few jewels you didn't know about. And that is the, and I, I didn't see sponsored by GE anywhere on here, but uh, <laughs> a, AETP evolutionary technology matters when you can take old technology out of an existing platform and put it in a new one and when we go back to the essential argument and challenge here which is range you talk for a second i know you're not an aerospace engineer but the aetp engine technology how that development plays right into some of the concerns that we've been addressing this hour
1: yeah, yeah, that's a good. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, I wish that GE had sponsored it. You know, I, the the folks that benefited from this study, I wish they'd thrown some more money at us, or thrown any money at us. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a good point. So the. Um, the ATP is supposed to give us a more efficient engine you know I think if the, the technology is basically it's got the dual bypass I think where you know it, it can go into multiple modes um, you know which which uh, would allow you to like basically it goes into you know cruise mode super cruise mode et cetera that allows it to um, operate very efficiently when you're kind of at cruise speed um, and they say, you know, could give you 25, 30% more range um, on a tank of gas uh, for the for one of these uh, strike fighters. Um, so what we talk about in the study, and actually this is a topic that we're studying now because we thought it was a very interesting, you know, trade space to assess is, well, if you have the ATP engine as an option, so you go back and start re-engineering F-35s or even F-18s, that are the, like the newer ones they are going to go through some future modernization midlife, um, if, you re- what, if you look at the cost to re-engine those and the resulting benefit in range, um, what does that mean for what you could do with the rest of the air wing in terms of the MQ-25s, right? So now longer-range aircraft, maybe your MQ-25s don't all have to be consumed using them for tanking, and I could maybe use some of them instead for uh, delivering payloads you know, or, or you know, doing ISR. Um, you know, or do I bring other things back onto the carrier that I had other, you know, had moved elsewhere? I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think you'd bring more E2 deltas back on or more Growlers because I think they still have limited utility due to their, um, due to being manned and also being pretty vulnerable because their whole job is to emit, which in, in these environments is basically asking to get shot at. Um, but I do think that you could look at ways of using those M Q twenty fives differently, um, or you could bring on more strike fighters and get rid of some M Q twenty five. So it creates a trade space where you look at the cost for that, that engine improvement or re you look at the cost of the M Q twenty five complement on the carrier, and you look at other options to increase the reach of the carrier like new weapons. So you'd say, Well, what if I did a you know, L Rasm that, you know, is a extended range, kinda like what the Air Force is doing with JASM, which you know takes some Warhead out and put some more fuel in, and you get more range. So we're looking at the trade space of those choices of, you know, engineering and weapons and, you know, more or less MQ-25s um, to see what's the best. What are the best options to think about in terms of the future air wing? Um, because that that that's a that's an area of investment the Navy has to make some choices on. Because right now the Navy's not making is not planning to buy the uh, advanced engines. Uh, that's an Air Force program that the Air Force is really. Uh, focusing on their F-35 fleet. Um, and so the Navy may be able to benefit from that technology, too, especially in the N-35s, if not in the F-18s. Well,
2: let me ask the, the question that needs to be asked, I guess, which is, this is all great. We want to do it by 2030, which is, by my calculations, eight years from now. Mm-hmm. How in the world are we going to pay for this?
1: yeah so we um, we show in that we did a, a you know basically a fiscal run out of the costs that Timothy did, so Tim did a great job of analyzing that. We used data from uh, c b o uh, in terms of uh, procurement costs and we co- coordinated with CBO on some of this work to make sure we got the numbers right um, and You can uh, pay for what we 're talking about by taking a modest reduction in the number of f thirty fives you buy so you know reducing the f thirty five buy by ten percent or so. Um, frees up enough money to be able to uh, purchase the additional platforms we're talking about here. Um, so, um, you know, at, at more uh, MQ-9s, um, more um, and then also we didn't talk about in the electro, electronic warfare missionary we talk about using um, unmanned vehicles for that mission the offensive airborne electronic attack mission um, that's we advocate shifting that to some of the skyborg vehicles the Air Force has developed the the UTAP 22 Mako the RQ 58 Valkyrie um, so buying those as well as um, buying uh, the balloons and and uh, Uh, making some of the improvements on the the adaptations that are necessary to to make these platforms work. So those are all something that can get captured by that relatively small reduction in the F-35 buy. And if you look at the, you know, thinking about how we deploy the fleet of the future, yeah, I think what we're going to find is the strike fighter shortfall, we're going to have to mitigate it, which we do, with some additional super hornets uh, in the near term. Uh, and in the far term, we're going to have to mitigate it by, um, you kind of reimagining the air wing to maybe shift more of it to the MQ-25 long term. But between now and twenty twenty thirty, what we talk about is fewer F-35s, a few more f eighteens to make up the this shortfall, and then we use the money, the savings to go buy these other platforms or buy these additional platforms that are needed to allow your your non carrier ships uh, and your shore bases to support the missions that the carrier no longer does by itself.
0: Well, you, you kind of stole my thunder there when you mentioned the skyboard program because I'm always a big fan that when you find yourself in a hurry and you can't get the perfect solution. You always look around and go, okay, whose solution idea can I steal from? And the Air Force Skyboard program, I think, is we, – we we could say we have a desire to be joint. Maybe it's not stealing other people's ideas. Right. But you <laughs> get joint credit for doing it. But you know, there's other things that we can do is is readdressing or rethinking things perhaps that, that we've uh, abandoned or lost their utility for whatever reason, and anybody who's talk to folks that have deployed recently, or just look at the condition on, on some of our ships, know that for the last couple of decades, and even now, we've been riding the fleet pretty hard. We're, we're burning up flight hours. Uh, we're, we're burning up uh, time that should be in the yard that gets cut short. And back in 2018, there was, uh, I think credit goes to Mattis, but I'm sure there's a many fathers to this, their dynamic force deployment that looks at having a little more flexibility in how we deploy our forces forward, which gives you an opportunity to do everything from uh, experimentation to Mm -hmm. more maintenance or uh, just basically giving sailors more time to be at home with their families. Uh, Talk a little bit about relooking at how we feed the COCOM appetite for our naval assets
1: yeah so this that's a good point, so one thing we um thought about in the study, like I talked about the t- at the uh, front end is giving more options to the commander's downrange. you know so the carrier air wing of today in the environment that china's going to create in a potential confrontation is going to have relatively few options in terms of how it can actually affect you know the situation in the south and East China Sea. This reimagining of the naval aviation portfolio. Gives commanders more options by, you know, one, increasing the reach of the carrier, but also because we're putting more missions onto other platforms that now gives you more ways to mix and match the force. You know, so if we're doing airborne early warning with um, MQ-4s, MQ-9s, balloons, space, and then um, and the E-2 Delta coming either from shore or from the carrier... You know, not, yeah, you got a lot of ways you can compose that. So that's good for, you know, the Indo-Pacific Command commander. Um, but then it's also more challenging for China. Um, the electromagnetic warfare mission, you know, the same way where we're disaggregating that mission from being all on the growler to instead be done by the the Valkyrie, um, the, the uh, UTAP-22, which we think should be coming off AMFIBS, uh, LPDs in particular, because they're rocket-assisted launch, um, and also air-launched effects, you know, the Army program. Um, that could be launched by the MQ-9s that the Marines are already deploying in the first island chain. Um, This is something Marines have already been looking at, air-launched effects, which are just small UAVs that do jamming or decoy missions or or provide comms or sensing. Um, So Navy can leverage what the Army is doing, leverage what the Air Force is doing. Um, This also gives the commanders more options, right? So if you've got Marines ashore in the first island chain with MQ-9s that can do ASW or um, deliver electronic warfare, that that's going to help you satisfy you know other mission, other situations, right? So you, you know COCOM is going to find themselves in plenty of situations that are short of war where they want to have scale in their ASW or they want to be able to do some electromagnetic warfare that's maybe deniable or attritable you know which we can't do with a growler but you can do if you drop a couple of these air-launched effects UAVs and they fly by and jam somebody's radar. Um, so I think that you know so that the more you know the more decomposed or the more disaggregated force that we're proposing um, which is just in response to the situation and the mission needs um, actually gives the commanders and paycom more options. Um, It's also, in a lot of ways, more sustainable because, you know, some of these vehicles can go out there and live out there more or less full-time, you're not doing the rotational deployments and burning up the force. Um, you know, and also to some degree, these platforms could stay out there even if they're carrier-based, and they'll just join the carrier when it arrives. So you could th- you could see a future where MQ-25s hang out um, in the Indo-Pacific and just join up with the carrier, um, and their operators and their maintainers are all getting trained back on, on simulators back here in CONUS. Um, so th- I think those are some of the ways that we thought about how this alternative approach to the for- – portfolio, you know, can give more options in terms of meeting the demands that Indo-Pacific Command is, is placing. And also, the thing that frustrates, I think, Indo-Pacific Command is the, the, the kind of one-size-fits-all one nature of the force that gets deployed. It's all kind of pre-integrated, pre-cooked. It can only do a few limited things in, different, you know, limited ways. They would like more ways to recompose it and to integrate it to solve the problems they have as opposed to um, solve things that the Navy thought was important to solve.
2: I think that was part of your discussion of going to a decision decision centric right. Approach instead of the uh, jokes or right. uh, other other approaches. Kind of discuss a little bit more because I think there's a little bit. There's a lot more to that. I, I mean, first I thought you guys the way had to set up. You were telling the co to to pack sand, and this was going to be a different ball of wax. But
1: um, apparently, that's not, my my reading was not correct on that. No, no, yeah, it's all about giving the commander the combatant commander more um, more options and more ways to recompose the force to deal with their particular problems that as they and as they're being presented to them um so that decision-centric approach is about maximizing the number of options that you have as far as possible into the future and so that's true in acquisition so I want to avoid you know kind of getting myself boxed in in terms of what that future program is going to be able to do um, and so instead of boxing myself in with like a growler type approach to ew you know we're going to break it up and look at the ew mission as being done by a bunch of different platforms that gives me more options from an acquisition standpoint. it also gives the that future commander more options um Why that's important is if you know if we're going to go up against the Chinese, we cannot win a battle of attrition with the chinese um necessarily I mean it could but it unlikely. Um, but what we could do is present the Chinese with a difficult enough problem day-to-day that they really can't build a plan they feel confident in. So constantly keeping them uncertain and and off balance regarding their likelihood of success uh, is going to be important for deterrence. Um, So by Pushing, you know, maximizing the number of options the naval force has farther into the future um, and giving that combatant commander more ways to mix and match the force keep, gives them ways to start to dissuade China or to con- you know, give China more uncertainty uh, about whether it will succeed on terms they would find acceptable. Um, so to, we thought that that was important from a deterrent standpoint and that we, we sometimes get fixated on modeling and simulation on a on a war fight that happens in a particular way at a particular time, um, and I think that plays into China's hands because they've built their plans around predictions like that. Um, we instead, want to make it hard to predict how we're going to fight and what we're going to use on any particular day.
0: Well, Brian, that's a great hour. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to to talk about a lot of the issues that you and Tim Walton uh, brought up on your in your April 2022. Uh, Project, I guess, would be one way to describe it. So, yep. if, if people are interested in and in what you had to say, and they would like to keep track on what you're working on, where's a good place for them to keep their eyeballs? And um, what other irons do you have in the fires this summer?
1: Yeah, so um, they can go to the Hudson.org uh, website, um, and we're the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology, so that's where all of our work is. And we've got a, we're doing a new website, so there'll be a big splash page where they can go to, and they'll see all the products that we're doing or have done um, all in one place. Um, and in terms of other projects, we're working right now on this carrier uh, wing study I talked about. Um, but the main thing we're doing um, that'll come out sooner than that is an undersea warfare study. And so we're doing a study on the future of offensive undersea warfare um, that I've already briefed out to. To a few audiences in my, you know, my home tribe of submarine land, Um, they got a lot of positive feedback on. And the main thing it tries to tackle is, um, how do we do suppression of enemy undersea defenses um, in the future? Because, uh, you know, we no longer have the sanctuary undersea that we have enjoyed for the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. We now have to deal with a more contested undersea environment. So we've got to think about, you know, how do we do that suppression mission that we have, you know, that we do above the water, but now do it below the water? Well that, that well, sounds game. brilliant. Let me let me let me let me add my thanks for
2: coming on the show uh too, Brian and it's been very interesting. Uh and uh, that I recommend people read this report because it's excellent.
1: Well thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Eagle One. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome and thanks everybody for joining
0: us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time. Hope you have a great navy day. Cheers.
1: Or you'll be to
2: blame For love has fairly drove me through Hoping you're the same It's a long way to temporarily